just thank you just for your love for us and the sacrifice of your son and your patience, your mercy towards us, Lord. Father, we pray you uh, speak to our hearts tonight as we move through these chapters. Give us understanding of um, just this man and his obedience and your heart for your people, Lord. And you use them just as a, a walking epistle, Lord, of your word. And so, Lord, we pray that you would deal with each of us. We love you. And, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening. I want to welcome any visitors that might be here. Um, last week, um, if you have a Bible, just turn to Hosea. We're going to start Hosea chapter 1 through 3 tonight, hopefully. I'm sure we'll get through it. In... Um, our first study, we did an introduction as we usually do, and we'll give you an overall picture of the book and point out some things so you better understand with the backdrop of it. And then we move uh, progressively, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. This is what we do on Sunday night, and on Sunday mornings, I take a, a, either an entire chapter or a smaller section, and we do an in-depth study. So this way, when I go through a book... You have a, a solid wide base of general commentary, so you can see a running commentary and how it fits. And then you also have deep in-depth studies so you can understand the book, how it hooks together. And so that when you get done with that book, you've got a good understanding of that book. And, um, and whenever you come back to that text, that text is never going to change in meaning. It's going to mean the same. The application may change. There's only one interpretation for the text, and there are many applications. But the, the verse that Isaiah wrote, Jeremiah wrote, or Paul, it only means the same thing to every generation. The application may be different, but there's only one interpretation. Uh, there's probably in my left hand, there would be maybe possibly two different understandings of a verse. But if you do good inductive Bible study, that verse will always mean the same thing in every generation. And so that's the, the primary responsibility of an expositor to find out what it meant to the people of that day, so then you can make the application to this day. But until you make the examination of the text with the cultural background, the context, and the language, then you, are, you, you have no freedom to make application. The Bible is not just reading and talking. <laughs> um, the Bible is uh, expounding the Word of God by comparing the Scriptures with the Scriptures and letting it speak for itself in the context with the setting that it was written under to a set people or a set time with a set problem, with a set culture, and with a set language it was understood. Um, if you were um, um, living in the year 3000, if we would ever be here, and you would dig up some archaeological dig and you find out some poetry that said, hey, that's radical, that's cool, that's groovy, you would wonder, what the heck are you talking about? So you'd have to look up history and find out when they used those words. You'd find out it was the 60s, right? And then you'd find out exactly what they're talking about. Because words change. From generation to generation, and you, you've, uh, I've given you an example of some of those um, very seldom that happened in the same generation, but we've been um, a generation that we have seen such a change. Vocabulary has changed much uh, in the last um, 25, 30, 40 years. And um, uh, they used to, you know, the flip-flops today, they used to call them thongs. So you don't call them thongs today because thongs are a whole different thing. It's a pair of underwear. So, um, but it's changed, right? So, if you, wrote, if you found a letter that was written in the 60s and they used that word, 
you would have to interpret it differently than you would for the 90s and the 2000s, right? It'd be two different things, right? And yet the same word is used. So that's why it's important to do good study so that you don't just fill in the gaps subjectively and uh, you use the word of God simply as a, a launching path for your text, which is nothing but a pretext to say what you want to say. Um, we're not called to do that. We don't have that liberty. We have great responsibility to handle the word of God honorably and, and with, with the fear of God. And certainly no one is perfect and no one knows it all. And um, the longer you study, the more you know how little you know. And so, but we roll up our sleeves and take our time and try to work through it and make sense with uh, honest exposition and uh, allow God to deal with our hearts. So the book of Hosea. We begin here in chapter 1, the first section, chapter 1, verse 1, down to chapter 3, verse 5, which we will get through tonight, Lord willing. And uh, it's the marriage of Hosea to Gomer. These first three chapters are the foundation of what God is going to deal with Israel. Um, the introduction is given to us in, in, in verse 1, where we read the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, king of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. And so uh, Hosea here dates his, his prophecy um, by these um, four kings. We've gone over the dates in Judah, so I'm not going to belabor the, the, the point of them. Uh, you can get it in the introduction and that. But many of the prophets recorded their prophecies by events or by kings of the north and the south um, to show you the accuracy of God's word because when you do that, it's not simply to confuse you, is that if you do good homework, you can correlate when this king was reigning in the north and when this king was reigning in the south to show you how accurate God's word is. And so every time you add a factor one more detail to whatever description you're saying in terms of dates or names, you are taking a greater chance of making mistakes. And it shows you when you read some of these genealogies and everything, and if you cross-reference them, I'm not saying we can figure them all out. Some we can't. But in that which we can look through and that which we can examine, the Word of God is just an amazing thing. And so the word of the Lord indicates here <clears throat> that it came to, by divine uh, revelation through inspiration. Now, the prophets spoke and God anointed them. Um, they did not speak of their own impulse or origin, as First, Second Peter uh, chapter 1, 20-21 says. But um, it, it was expired from the breath of God, from the mouth of God, Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And therefore, many of the prophets wrote their prophecy that we have, the major minor prophets that we've seen. But some of the prophets did not write down their prophecies, Elijah, Elisha, um, Ahijah, and many others, okay? Uh, and, and they didn't write them. Um, John the Baptist, one of the prophets, he never wrote anything. Um, and so, um, his name is Salvation, Hosea. The same derivative is the name from Jesus and um, Joshua. Uh, his name was changed by Moses again uh, to um, Hoshea. And um, these days now are balanced by Jeroboam, who was the king of the north, the ten nations that were uh, apostatized from, from the Lord. In the year 793 to 753 was when he reigned. The division of the kingdom in, in 1 Kings 12 by Jeroboam, the son of, of Solomon. And um, he reigned for 28 years in Samaria. 
And uh, it was a time of peace, prosperity, luxury, as we've seen already about the, uh, two or three messages. And yet after his death, Jeroboam, there were assassinations and murders and everything else, and it's just very unstable. Uh, Isaiah is a contemporary, as we stated, of Hosea. Um, he's younger, a contemporary. He's speaking to Judah, Isaiah 1.1. And Amos was older, speaking to Israel in the north, Amos 1.1, 20 years before. And Micah was a younger, speaking to Judah in Micah 1.1. So some of the contemporaries. So God has his men predict, preaching and, and, and pronouncing repentance to his people, both in the north and the south. And um, the command of God for Hosea uh, to marry Gomer comes in verse 2 down to 3. And it says, Now when the Lord began to speak to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, um, Go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the Lamb has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. The Lord began to speak to Hosea here. We are not told how he spoke to him, whether it was a vision, a dream, or just an impression. Um, but yet God used many of these things, and he speaks of similitudes in chapter 12 that we'll see later on. Of, um, of, of even as um, Jeremiah um, took that girdle or that sash that was buried in the Euphrates River, Ezekiel, as I said this morning, of all the charades and the things that he did to communicate his message. God used many different methods to communicate. And um, this now is a parallel of uh, the tragic personal um, story of Hosea to the actual story of Israel towards God. Um, literal adultery here again to take women from harlotries. Many try to soften the story of Hosea. And they use all kinds of rationales saying that... Um, Gomer couldn't have been a prostitute. God would never ask that. And that um, it would violate the law, this and that. And that um, uh, what it means is that um, he, um, he married her and then she went astray afterwards. Well, that's not what the text says. So it, when the text makes sense, don't make it say nonsense, uh, Wesley said. Very simple. Uh, the most obvious sense is the true and real sense. Um, it's not like in the early church fathers, Origen and Cyprian and all those guys. They looked at the scriptures in allegorical or spiritualizing form, and they would give a a, a common reading of, of what that was there obvious, then the moral reading, and then the secret reading, the hidden meaning. And because you are a trinitary, you are a, 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 a trinitary person, body, soul, and spirit. That's how they divided it. And so you had Origen and, and, and Philo and all these guys that just, I mean, they just, it's like taking acid. They just made all kinds of different interpretations, going crazy over it. But that has not stopped. That still goes on today in churches. I'm amazed as I, I listen to the radio at times, and I don't listen to Christian radio too often. But um, I, where are you getting this? Did you have a sunstroke or what? It's not even in the text. We are obligated to stick to the context. It says very plainly here. And the parallel is of Gomer to Israel, Hosea to God, the offspring to the children of Israel. Real, real simple. Gomer's name means complete. 
She was the daughter of Diblium, who, uh, which means two cakes or fig cakes. And again, um, this was common offerings for the pagan uh, prostitute cult worship of those days, those fertility gods. Um, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now in 4 down to 9, the names of the children were prophetic of the judgment of God over the northern kingdom. Um, in verse 4, it says, Then the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. It shall come to pass in that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So verse 4 and 5 here. The first son, Jezreel. It means God's souls. Or he scatters. Prophetically of to avenge Jehu's massacre, if you remember, of Ahab's 70 sons. He cut off their heads for Ahab and Jezebel's theft and murder of Naboth and the vineyard. And again, all the atrocities that were going on in the kingdom. And God used evil men to accomplish his will and to fulfill prophecy. But he never forced the men to do the evil. Always remember that, okay? Because if God forces men to do evil, then how can God hold a man responsible for the evil? And God in his sovereignty knows the end from the beginning. And he can speak of things before they happen. So when they happen, you know he's God. But he never violates his own attributes. Nor does he ever violate man's will. Um, the account is in Second Kings 10. And Jehu also did not walk with a complete heart. But he followed the house of Jeroboam. Second Kings 10.31 tells us. Um, God said it would occur in the fourth generation uh, after Jeroboam, and that's exactly what took place in Second Kings 10.30 and 15.12. So again, the prophets declared a certain thing at a certain time, and then when it was fulfilled, they declared, here it is, the fourth generation. So you had the prophetic future that only God knows, and the fulfillment, and they tie them together. The valley of Jezreel here is also the valley of of Armageddon or Esdralon. Some of you have gone to Israel with us as you're standing there on the Carmelite Monastery with Haifa behind us, the Mediterranean Sea. You see the Esdralon Valley where all the great battles have been fought, where the battle of Armageddon will be there. The um, Bible says it will be a blood 250 miles bridal deep in the battle of, Megiddo, of Armageddon. Amazing place. Beautiful there. And then... Um, um, God named the second child um, in verse 6. It says, And she conceived again and bore a daughter. Then God said to him, uh, Call her name Laruhamah, for I will not no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. Now, God was going to allow the northern kingdom to be taken captive by Assyria in 722. The southern kingdom would go 722 of 606, so you've got six, uh, about 16. So 116 years later was the first siege on Judah. 
and then in uh, 596 and 586 was the final one. Uh, both of them ultimately went down, but here the first one is um, is the northern kingdom, and um, the second shell again is given the name by God, and all these are prophetic of the judgment that's coming upon the northern kingdom. Um, she will no longer have mercy, or I will no longer have mercy in Israel. So no pity, no mercy. That's the name. And then in verse 7, it says, Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah, will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bull, nor by sword or battle, by horses or horsemen. Now, interesting, even though there is a hundred and some years difference between the two captivities, um, in verse 7, um, he declares that Judah would not would survive, but not through her own uh, ability or, or, or uh, armament of her own. And if you remember that uh, in Second Kings 19, um, Assyria had come and threatened the men on the wall and, 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 and in fact, blasphemed God. And um, the elders and all were listening on the wall and they went to the king Hezekiah and he tore his clothes and then he sent a letter and they took it before Isaiah and Isaiah took it, Hezekiah took it before the Lord and laid it before him. And Isaiah prophesied not an arrow would be, would be uh, fired, the city would not be taken, they would not enter the city. And God sent one angel and one night he destroyed 185,000 frontline Syrian troops. One night. So, here you have a prophecy many years before it took place. And it's recorded in fulfillment. And so as he's bringing judgment upon the northern kingdom, he here directs a prophecy towards the southern kingdom. The house of David, Judah and Benjamin, two tribes. Now, in verse 8 and 9, it says, Now, when she had weaned Laruhamah, she conceived and bore a son. Um, weaning was about two to three years, so they uh, breastfed their children up to that age. Um, long time. And um, this third child, God said, Call his name Loemi. For you are not my people, I will not be your God. Here he's indicating that the child is really not Hosea's. Gomer has conceived this child through an adulterous relationship. It's believed that she belonged to the cultic prostitution of the pagan temples. I will not be your God, indicating God's rejection of Israel. Completely here. Verse 10 says, yet the number of the children of Israel. Now when you come to verse 10, all the way down to chapter 2, verse 1. You have the promise of God regarding the future restoration of Israel in the millennial kingdom. So you have this prophet speaking to the very day, to the very problem, to the very tragic personal uh, issue of Hosea, which is a parallel to that which has been committed against God. And all of a sudden he jumps 
way into the future, into the millennial kingdom, after the second coming, after the judgment of the nations, and the thousand-year reign is established. Listen carefully. He says, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sands of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in that place which was said to them, You are not my people. There it shall be said to them, You are the sons of the living God. Here the fulfillment, fulfilled promise to Abraham is being cited. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, Genesis 22, 17, Genesis 32, 12. You're not my people, now sons of the living God, finally looking to their Messiah, the second coming of Jesus. So he jumps way to the millennial kingdom, and yet he doesn't mark it such. <laughs> but the context shows you what he's talking about. Completely opposite to the judgment that had come on Israel. The same phrase, chapter 1, verse 9. Not my people. They will be his people in that day. But right now they're not. They're being chastened. Now this was not fulfilled after the Babylonian captivity, as you know. And by the way, Paul quotes this to indicate the salvation of the Gentiles in Romans nine twenty four through 26. You and I would have never picked that out, but Paul picks it out through inspiration and says, this is what it is. <laughs> Now notice verse 11. He says, Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Now examine what he's saying here in verse 11. Both Judah and Israel will be one when they acknowledge Jesus as Messiah after the battle of Armageddon and he sets up the kingdom. Notice, no longer Israel and Judah, but gathered together as one nation, under one head, Jesus. Now the northern kingdom is going into captivity, 722, through Syria. They would be cross-populated all over. That's where you get the Samaritans, half Jews and half pagan. Okay? And they would cross-populate them to deter them from escaping, intermarrying, so their race would disappear. And there would be less chance of them escaping because they would be more depressed and discouraged. It's a great tactic. Now, Judah's going to go in 606, 596, 586. When Judah goes in to Babylon, all those that went to Assyria also go into Babylon. Now, they're in Babylon. They're one. They're no longer north and south. But they don't have one head. Okay? So this cannot be fulfilled in Babylon. Alright? They're no longer north and south, but they don't have one head. Now when Jesus came, he declared he was their Messiah. They did not acknowledge him. So he declared destruction and judgment over them, right? The one head is when Jesus returns. He will deal with Israel, as we noticed this morning, in the middle of the tribulation, when the abomination of desolation takes place, and they will flee to the wilderness, Isaiah 16, 1, the city of Selah, Petra. Revelation 12, 6, the woman will flee. The Antichrist will chase her. God will open the earth miraculously, destroy the army, protect her for three and a half years. And as Jesus comes back to fight the battle of Armageddon, and we come back with him, 
And then he destroys the armies of the world. And then he, first thing he does is judges the nation, how they dealt with the Jew in Matthew 25. The sheep on the right, the goats on the left. And then he will set up the kingdom. And this is what he's talking about here. One head, Jesus. Ezekiel 37, 19, listen. Say to them, thus saith the Lord God, surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim. Remember, Ephraim is used as the head of the northern kingdom. We said that, okay, 37 times. And the tribe of Israel, his companions, and I will join them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. That will happen at the return of Jesus Christ. When they will acknowledge. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 37. You shall not see me henceforth to say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Wow. And so right now Israel is back in the land. Short term fulfillment. But long term fulfillment. The spiritual outpouring of the spirit of God. Will take place. Once the abomination of desecration takes place. Matthew 24, 15, by the words of Jesus, she will flee, as I said. God will protect her. And he will call on the Lord. And he will, will see as we move on that he will bring them out of that land. And then set the kingdom up for Israel. So you have Ezekiel um, 36 and 37. That has been partly fulfilled short term. They're in the land, but the spirit of God has not been poured out on them. There's a twofold prophecy in both of those chapters. Um, Israel will come out of the city of Petra. And again, um, the day of Jezreel, it says there. Now, that should, that should remind us of chapter 1. Jezreel in chapter 1, the name of the child, was for scattering and punishment of captivity. Now it's scattering of sowing for blessing the millennial kingdom. Two different contexts. Two different effects. You have to mark that. You have Isaiah 2, 1 through 5, 11, 1 through 12, Revelation 21 through 6. We'll see Hosea 2, 22 and 23. He will deal with the kingdom again. <laughs> so the prophet goes from the current time all the way into the millennial kingdom, often. Now, as we said this morning and last week, how it is that people can teach that God is through with Israel and that we, the church, are the true Israel and that all the promises of Israel are us, are to us, is beyond me. I'll give you a big title. Replacement theology. That's heresy. There's no such thing. When you believe in replacement theology, you are fighting against God. Israel is the apple of his eye. You don't want to put your finger in God's eye. Trust me. Now, it doesn't mean we condone or agree or say that Israel does everything that's right and proper today. We don't have to defend Israel. God defends Israel. No one will touch Israel. Trust me. I will make her a troublesome stone, heavy for the whole world. Whenever the whole world comes against her, he says in Zechariah. And I will destroy those nations. Amazing. And so, notice... In verse 1, say to your brethren, my people, and to your sister, mercy is shown. Verse 1 belongs to chapter 1. Chapter 2 should begin with verse 2. 
Chapter 1 of chapter 2 is the summary statement of that day in the millennial kingdom due to the mercy of God. All right? Context, context, context. Notice the difference of the relationship. My people. What a contrast to the beginning of the chapter. <laughs> Not my people. You got two different events going on here. A lot of time between them. Now in chapter 2 verse 2 down to 5. You have the charges of God to idolatrous Israel. And it says bring charges against your mother. Bring charges for she is not my wife nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her side and her adulteries from between her breasts. Hosea declared the imperative command. Here is given by God. Isaiah, uh, Hosea is speaking in the place of God, the prophet of God. The charges against your mother, the children are to plead. Now some say that these, this reference is to the children of Hosea. And I think that it is applicable to her because of the double analogy and the parallel. But certainly when we move to the next verse, God now deals directly with the nation. But as we will see in chapter 3, before we get through tonight, that Gomer goes and, and, and redeems her from the slave market, from the brothels. And so the pleading certainly must come from his children also. You can't escape it. The vivid description of a man here in these cultic fertility rites of the brothels of the uh, pagans of the land as she would uh, be um, exercising her craft, if you will, face to face between her breast, And he tells her to turn to repent. The most intimate, the most personal, the most sacred of things that God has given to a man and a woman that here she would have no shame, no despicableness about it or anything else. And it's amazing what we as sinners can do and commit if we give ourselves over to sin. That the things that we do become like just water off a duck's back. That which offended me at one time, that which disgusted me at one time. After I do it several times, no longer does it have any effect upon me. You don't have to go very far to understand this. You remember the first time you stole a candy bar. It was difficult. It was hard. It took you about 25 tries. Your heart was beating. And when you grabbed that sucker, man, your heart was beating. You ran and you were looking back. But then the next time it became easier and then the next time easier and easier. And pretty soon you were a pro. And that goes for any, any sin. Here, Hosea is asked to repent. Or Hosea's wife and the northern kingdom also here. To repent of her harlotries. Verse 3. Lest I strip her naked and expose her as in the days she was born. And make her like the wilderness 
and had her and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. In other words, taking everything away from her. Everything she had was because of him, as we're going to see as we move along here. So the warning is that God would take everything from her. In verse 4, God would have no mercy on, on the idolatrous people, but those not given to idolatry would equally suffer because whatever you do as a parent, your children will pay. Now, God doesn't punish the parents for the children, their children for the parents, Ezekiel 18 and 33. Yet, there are effects that we bring upon people because of our stupid decisions, because of our actions, right? They're the innocent party. And so, in verse 4, it says, It will not have mercy on her children, for they are the children of harlotry. Then in 5, it says, For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, who gave me my bread and my water, my wool, my linen, my oil, and my drink. In other words, in, in verse 5, she just thinks that she has worked hard for all these things, and she attributes all this wealth to those who have paid her for her services. But in fact, she gives her glory to her gods because she serves her gods through this type of activity. Today you have the same thing in the, um, uh, in, in the field of pornography and in industry. It's a huge industry. Beautiful women, I'm sure, many times. Young. And yet, there was a stigmatism, there was a evil, there was a, 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 a sense of indecency at one time. Today it's celebrated. Today there's no big deal. In fact, they, they're almost like movie stars. They have special um, uh, meetings and they sign books and everything else. Amazing. We've gone so far down in our nation. Gomer had violated the covenant of marriage, the steadfast love of her husband. Israel was the same. God represents or presents here the incriminating evidence against Israel. In verse 5, the nation is guilty of playing the harlot, behaving shamefully through these sexual rights. The words of the nation condemn her. Being arrogant, headstrong, they'll go after her lovers in verse 5 there. The pagan gods. Deceptively. Seeking them. Giving them all the credit for her provisions. Her allurement was material gain and pleasure. Those are some very strong motivations. Wealth. And fun. In fact, much of the church today is functioning under the advertisement is come and have fun with us. Listen to Christian radio. Look at some of the websites. Do you think the early century church, Paul went through Asia Minor? Hey, come and have some fun down at Antioch with us. We have turned the church into social clubs. 
into medical models. It's amazing. Into marketing corporations. There's no seriousness about the gospel, nor fear of God, nor complete embracement of the word and the spirit to transform us from day to day, from glory to glory. And there's a strong delusion within the church. Verse 6, down to 8, the preventative restraint of God. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in so that she cannot find her path. So in other words, God goes out of his way to try to restrain her, hinder her. And God does that to every person who knows him. I'm sure he did that to David. When David first walked out on the balcony, nothing wrong with it. Walking on your balcony, you look out and you see this beautiful naked lady. Nothing wrong with that. You walk out, whoa. But that was your first check. Right away, you should have turned around. Right? But he didn't. He kept thinking about it. And as he's thinking about it, God's checking him again. But he's not paying attention. He says, hey, hey, whose who's wife is that? And um, her father-in-law says, she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Another check. Keeps dabbling with it. More checks. He says, go get her for me. Another check. She walks in. Another check. Takes her to his bedroom. Another check. By this time, you don't hear no checks. Because God is the last thing on your mind. And David destroyed himself. Wow. God will do everything to stop me. But he will not force me. I am responsible. Wow. The word hedge means to fence around with thorns. A painful discipline. God will do different things. Job 1.10, Isaiah 5.5. Same things, hedging in the vine. The word wall again emphasizes the complete emphasis that God is doing to deter a person for his own protection. But we get headstrong sometimes, right? I've heard um, men sit in my office and they're going to leave their wives or have left their wives and they've looked at me straight in the face and say, X, I know what I'm doing is wrong. And I know they possibly will not be in heaven. But I'm going to do it anyway. Wow. Self is strong. Sex make you go crazy if you are walking with God. Especially in a society that hands you anything you want. Has no boundaries. Whatever you want, man. ACDC, whatever's around. Because there's 
no morality anymore. You're not limited to just heterosexual relationships, right? Not even with just husbands and wives, right? I began with swinging couples in the 60s towards the end. Swapping wives and husbands in the 70s. And now we've moved on that it doesn't really matter. And it's destroyed the home. It's destroyed our nation. It has shamed our children. And has warped their minds. And all God wants to do is to protect us. Through obedience. Verse 7. God knew the sinful, self-serving slavery of Israel. He says, so she chased her lovers, but not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go return to my first husband, for then it was better for me than now. So in her pursuit as God is obstructing her and everything else, she doesn't get the satisfaction, the accomplishment. She says, well, I'll go back to my first husband, God. But, but it's only what serves her. It's not a real devotion. She reflects upon it, but she doesn't act on it, which makes it even worse. Verse 8, God knew her self-deception. Failing to recognize God was responsible for all her provisions, attributing them again to her God. For she did not know that I gave her grain, new wine, and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. So all these things God had given to her, but she just used them to service the places of idolatry and to serve the idols, to maintain the places. Israel again syncretizing the worship of Yahweh to the calf worship, declaring that they knew God. God in his mercy continued to provide the wealth of the northern kingdom, being patient. But sometimes the wealth is actually judgment because wealth without God and fearing God destroys us. There's one thing worse than having no money. Having money. Because money opens doors that will suck you in and destroy you if you don't have God with you. There's only one thing worse than being single and wishing you were married. Being married and wishing you were single. So you walk with God. You make your decisions based on God, not emotions, not feelings. Not the morality of the culture, of the day. The word return appears 14 times in Hosea. Now, verse 9 down down to 13, we have the corrective judgment as we pointed out this morning. Therefore... 
I will return and take away my grain in its time. Notice my grain, my new wine in its season. And will take back my wool, my linen given to cover her nakedness. So she's ungracious. She's unappreciative. God says, I'm going to remove everything. Now I will uncover her naked. Her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall deliver her from my hand. I will also cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days of joy, her new moons, her Sabbaths, her appointed feasts. Again, she had corrupted the Passover, the unleavened, the, um, the Pentecost, tabernacles, blended them in with everything else. But still saying, we worship Yahweh. Christians are like that today. Just stop and ask a Christian. Ask them what they believe. Ask them if they believe that the church will go through the tribulation. Ask them if they believe a Christian can still live with somebody. And most Christians say, oh yeah. Can a Christian drink? Most, most Christians today will say, oh yeah. Christianity and the church is being redefined by the emergent church, ladies and gentlemen. You better know what's happening from within the church. What you see is not what you get. And so, in verse 12, he says, And I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, of which she has said, These are my wages that, I, that my lovers have given me. So I will make them a forest and the beast of the field shall eat them up. God used many times the, the beast of the field to bring judgment on the people. In fact, he told the children of Israel when he brought them into the land. Now, I'm not going to remove every, all the people that were at the, at the, all at once. I'm going to allow you to move through the land and bring judgment and remove them a little bit so you can replace them. Lest the beast of the field multiply you and then you're in trouble. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, increase, and there's not enough more animals than people, and then you, they come after you. God's in control. So he would take that from them. In verse 13, God would castigate Israel for her spiritual adultery, burning incense and everything. And I will punish her for the days of the Baals to which she burned incense. She decked herself with her earrings and jewelry and went after the, her lovers, but... Me, she forgot, says the Lord. And here's her sin. Sin against love. Her husband. I'm amazed how many women now leave their husbands. It used to be the other way around. But I'm also amazed how many people don't get married anymore. So the, the secular society says, well, you know, there's less divorces today. Yeah, because no one gets married. It's ridiculous. She forgot her God. God will deal with her severely. Verse 14. On down to 23, you have the future restoration of Israel by God. Here he comes back again. It wasn't accomplished after Assyria. It wasn't accomplished after Babylon. The remnant of Israel will be blessed by God. 14 through 17. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. Here is the, 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 the speech of, of someone who is trying to court a young lady. Woo her to him. This prophetic of Israel in the future. We'll bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her, to her heart. I will give her um, vineyards 
from there in, in the valley of Achor as an open door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. As you know, in, in verse 15, the valley of Achor, which means trouble, that's where Achan took the accursed thing. And they couldn't take Ai, so then they judged him and they stoned him to death. Then they had victory and relationship was back. But here again, this is the future. Um, that the open door of hope would be right there in the place that was no hope. Yet, what made it hopeful? One's confession and reconciliation was back, right? So now that her, her, his wife is reconciled to him, here's the hope. As they come out of Petra and they come through the valley of Achor, it will be with singing and rejoicing because of the relationship, just like the deliverance of Egypt. Redeemed by God. Verse 16. The relation is marked by the new contract of marriage. I will... Verse 16. And it shall be in that day. And here's the key. That day. Okay. This is the phrase for from the last half of the tribulation to the kingdom. Depending what is said on what context. It shall be in that day, says the Lord. That you will call me my husband, Ishi, and no longer call me my master, Lord. For I will take from her mouth the name of the Baals, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. In other words, God will have no rival in that day, that day of the millennial kingdom. When he reconciles his wife to himself, she has been given a certificate of divorce, Isaiah 50 verse 1. And other passages. For I will take from her mouth the name of the Baals. Verse 18. And that day again I will make a covenant with them. With the beasts of the field, the birds of the air. And with the creeping things of the ground. Bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth. To make them lie down in safety. The animal kingdom will be reverted back to the pre Adamic state of the fall. The lamb will lay with the lion, Isaiah 65. We have many passages of the kingdom, 65, 25. Isaiah 11, 6 through 14. Ezekiel 37, 19. But also notice, not only that, but there will be no war. So this verse cannot speak of any history in the past or the present. Or even the future before Jesus returns. <laughs> we are right now at the verge of World War III, if you will. Israel will be in safety. Are you going to tell me that's today? <laughs> now, no one's going to be able to touch Israel until the Antichrist comes. But they're not in safety. They will in the millennial kingdom because the millennial kingdom is for the Jew, for the remnant of Israel. Where she will receive all the promises that were promised her from the Old Testament that she never fulfilled. The Gentiles will serve her. If you were with us in our series on the millennial kingdom. And God will celebrate her as we'll see as we move along here. Verse 19. He says, I will betroth you to me forever, 
Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness, justice, and loving kindness and mercy. That has not happened today. Israel is secular. You have the Orthodox Jews with the black hats, the curls, and all that. But they, they again, they have no, no means by which to have a relationship with God. The temple has been destroyed. 70 AD was the last sacrifice. Without sacrifice, without blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. How are you going to have your sins forgiven? Who are you going to, there's no priest. How are they going to confess them? Who's the mediator? If they don't believe in Jesus Christ. Wow. I'll betroth you twice as stated. Verse 20. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Third time of betrothal. It shall come to pass in that day. Here it is again. Verse 21. In that day, the millennial kingdom. That I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer with grain, with new wine, with oil. They shall answer, Jezreel, scatter. But this time it's sowing for blessing, not for judgment. This again is the millennial kingdom. As in verse 10 and 11, chapter 1. So the prophet deals with the situation, then he jumps into the millennial kingdom. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth. A literal kingdom. People who don't, do not believe in literal kingdom, they're called a millennialists. Any time you put an a before the word, it means none. Theo, God. Atheist, no God. Okay? We believe a literal thousand year reign. The Bible speaks about it very, very clearly in Revelation chapter 20 and throughout the, the scriptures. And I will have mercy on her who had. Not obtain mercy. Everything's reversed now from the curses. Then I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. All of these things are reflective of the names that were given to the three children born. Now in chapter 3, only five verses, you have the redemption of Gomer by Hosea. Then the Lord said to me another command. Go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who took or who looked to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. So here you have again God's interpretation of what it means by the marriage relationship of Hosea to this prostitute and what has happened to him with Israel. It's a literal interpretation. You can't allegorize it. You can't spiritualize it. He makes it right here. Gomer has sold herself off. Her beauty is gone. Her youth is gone. She's worn and torn. No one wants her. It's at this point that God says, all right, go get her. Wow. Wow. This prophet is too much. A man just like you, just like I. I don't think I would do it. I'm being candid with you. In my mind, I don't think I would do it. But then again, God says that he enables us and he woos us. And and I pray I would obey. I hope I would obey. But I have to just be in utter awe of this man. Verse 2 says, so I... Bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half omers of barley. And so here, 
Gomer reached the bottom. Half price of a slave, 15 shekels, 80 gallons of barley, animal food. Wow. In verse 3, you have the sanctification of Hosea. Of himself and his bride. Notice, I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too I will be towards you. So in other words, I will abstain and you will abstain. And we're going to give ourselves to God. We're going to have a set time so that God can deal with us and God can do that work. Amazing. He just bought her out of a slave brothel. And he has this commitment towards her. Hosea is giving a picture to the northern kingdom of God's love for them. But that picture is God's love for us. You and I. Because he bought us out of the slave market, we are told. In Corinthians, and Galatians, and Romans. None of us can boast and say, well, I deserve to be redeemed. <laughs> I deserve to be saved more than you. Nobody can say that. You would have to be perfect to say that. And you and I certainly are not. We sin when we don't even know it. Sometimes people say, well, you, somebody gets offended or something, gets, somebody gets real hurt, and you're completely ignorant about what you did or said. And you find out, you go, oh, I, I am so sorry. I didn't know that. I'm... Because we're sinners. Whether in private or in public, we sin. We fall short. Verse 4 says, for the children of Israel, here's the parallel. He's putting her aside, himself aside. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king or prince, without a sacrifice, a sacred pillar, without an ephod, a teraphim. So in verse 4, Israel abide many days without a king. It's been almost 2,000 years a prince as they rejected Jesus Christ. Without sacrifice, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Without ephod the priest, the mediator. Without teraphim, that means without idol gods. Some commentators say that Israel was cured from their idolatry after the Babylonian captivity. I don't think so. Read Ezra. Read Nehemiah. They did not get over their idolatry. This will look towards the future. When Jesus Christ will return. When they will look to him. And verse 5 nails it. Afterwards, after the many days without their king, without their Messiah, Jesus. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord, their God, and David, their king. They shall fear the Lord in his goodness Here's the context. In the latter days. He goes from the 
contemporary setting and horrific personal tragedy and the parallel of the north to God. And he jumps all the way to the latter days of the day of restoration as God will take back his wife that he's put away, Israel. So don't believe people when they tell you that God is through with Israel. It's a lie. It's absolutely crazy to teach that. I would not want to stand before God. Not when he says what he says about Israel. (laughs) Not when he says to Abraham, those that bless you I will bless and those that curse you I will curse. Genesis 3.12.3 Every person who goes against Israel is fighting against God. Whether they are presidents, senators, congressmen, teachers, students, or airheads. It doesn't matter. Anybody who tries to divide the land of Israel is fighting against God. The land and the people go together. They're like Twinkies. You can't separate them. Like peanut butter and jam. The people are in the land now. All that's left is for God to pour out His Spirit upon them. Once He removes His church in the middle of the tribulation, as they see the deception by the Antichrist, and they flee to the wilderness and call upon Jesus. And in the second coming, He will gather all the Jews from all the earth, His remnant, judge the nations for their mistreatment of the Jew, and set up the kingdom. Wow. Man, how... And people say the Bible is just a normal, regular book. How did these guys know these things? You've got 6,000 years of history. From the beginning of Adam to Abraham. 2,000. 2,000 from Abraham to now. Now we've been 2,000. Different continents, different authors. None of them got together. They all have the same message. (laughs) No contradiction. This is the word of God, ladies and gentlemen. Approach it, read it, and treat it as such. There's nothing like it. Father, thank you for your grace and love, your goodness. Deal with our hearts and cause us to be open to the work of your spirit. Thank you for this time, Lord. And we just thank you. We love you, Lord, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet and we'll close in worship.